Welcome to episode 129 of the Get Cyber Resilient Show. Today is our behind the news edition of the show. I'm Dan McDermott, your host, and I'm joined by our resident cybersecurity experts, Garrett O'Hara and Vin Yuan. Today, we will begin by looking into the latest high-profile, large-scale breach, that at Latitude Financial. Next, we will review the latest misuse of AI technology to fool the voice recognition systems used to verify identity at Centrelink and the ATO. And our final deep dive story is reviewing the possibility that the federal government is considering making the tech sector bear more liability for insecure products. And we'll end with a wrap of the latest breaches and vulnerabilities to make the headlines. Gar and Vin, welcome back to the podcast. And as always, there's plenty of news headlines for us to dive into. Vin, let's begin by taking a look at the latest addition to the big breach nightmare, the attack at Latitude Financial. This one's um, quite hot off the press. It was around Thursday when I sent the news articles over to yourself, Dan and Gar. I feel like if it wasn't for what happened last year around Optus and Maybank, this would be the big, ah, we're under attack, it's a major breach. But it seems like this time's a little bit more toned down based off what we've experienced already um, with this previous instance there. But essentially, Ledger Financial, they are a company, for those who don't know, that issues consumer loans, you know, things like traveling, uh, cards that you can use to pay for things. They do things like credit cards as well and find out pay later schemes. So very financially like heavy in terms of kind of their operation as an organization. But it was reported that they suspected and detected unusual activity on their systems in recent days. And we don't have the full picture yet because it's still quite new. But what we are led to believe is it's their back-end infrastructure provider who seems to be the first step of this sophisticated attack, um, leading to credential harvesting, which we've spoken about oh so many times on the pod itself, and it's led to credentials that had access to two other providers that were then able to get this information from Latitude's customers. So sophisticated, I guess, based off the fact that there were many parts to it, um, but it'll be very interesting to see as this develops that we then start to see how exactly did they get in and what was the cause of it all. Has there been an attack in the last three years <laughs> that wasn't sophisticated? Not reported as such anyway. Yeah, it's weird that, isn't it? They're yeah. all sophisticated. And I think you made a good point, though, in that it's like, you know, I mean, this is 300,000 records, right? Like, I mean, it is not insignificant yet the noise around it hasn't been anywhere near the outcry that we saw sort of in the back half of last year. Are we, is the media complacent? Are we becoming complacent? Is it another day, another breach? Like what's, what's your take on as to why we're not really seeing the same, I guess, overt, you know, standing in parliament, lecturing, you know, that, that people should be doing things better from a cybersecurity standpoint that we saw sort of uh, with, like you said, with Medibank and Optus in particular. Yeah, I, I think there's a bit of everything there. But I think even as we take a step away from you know, us who work and kind of breathe security on a day-to-day basis and you look at the public and what they've already experienced, they've it's just become numb to it. You know, they've gone through Medibank and Optus and there's the whole thing of my, my information's out there, my license. And I don't think necessarily a lot of people have seen too much of the after effects of that as well. Well, so potentially when Latitude happened, it's kind of like a, well, it's happened before and you know everything seems to still be ticking along. Maybe it's going to be okay. 
I, I would talk to my partner about this over the weekends. Like, did you hear about latitude? She's like, oh, did they get breached? I said, yes. She's like, cool. She went back to her TV shows. Like, it might just be one of those things where, you know, it's going to be a part of normal everyday life. And great. I think with this one as well, though, that I think many people wouldn't even know if they are a latitude customer um, because, um, and then there people who are aware that latitude is the old G money. And so, where, like, they now obviously have a, you know, a sort of a consumer facing brand and, and sort of have direct clients. But most of their business is actually around when you go into stores and you finance products. If you go through a financing option, at, you know, for a new TV or, you know, what's the latest, a sound bar or whatever else that you need. And if you go into Harvey Norman or JB and you go onto a finance plan, most of those are provided by Latitude. And so many people may not even realize that they have, maybe that they have been impacted well, the, the data may have been impacted and compromised through this breach as well. Yeah, like you mentioned, it's not a small amount. 300,000 customers, including driver's licenses, like I think 96% was reported to be driver's licenses and 4% were passports. So they're pretty like big deals in terms of, you know, sources of identity. And it's something that actually I only learned based off um, the Optus one. You know, your driver's license, that permit number on the front never changes it's the id issued number at the back that's the new one that changes when you get issued a new card as well so i guess now we need to kind of figure out is it just the permit number that just got leaked or is it actual photocopies of the actual driver's license we can see the back and the front and then that's the important piece of information there uh, but you're right like you know when i heard about it i think i'm in the clear i don't think i've done any business with latitude financial in the past but now i'm thinking maybe did i go through something like a jb hi-fi or that i'm a big apple product fanboy so maybe i got something from them and as part of that i've uh, then started to use latitude services so i'm waiting for that email nothing's come up yet but i think a lot of people are in the same situation where we're just waiting to kind of see uh, am i one of those people that have been affected yeah dan I, I think you're actually spot on with the um the idea that our data is living everywhere and i think the one of the biggest problems is the sort of the background opt-in for data sharing that happens when you buy something new and um, whether that's a you know, a, a guarantee on a you know piece of hardware. I think you used the example of was it a TV or a sandbar? If you fill out the form and you send that into you know whoever the manufacturer is, it's not like they they are sort of vertically integrated. A lot of these days, they're they're outsourcing that stuff to other organizations, so the data gets shared there. Um, I, I think it's a huge mess to be honest with you. And and I think to to your point, you, you kind of think, oh, I won't be affected by that. I actually, sorry, Vin, I think it was you who said it. You know, I won't be affected by that. And then you kind of think, well, hang on. You know, have I bought anything in, in one of those retailers? And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. you kind of realize that you've been caught up in it. I, so my dad visited here years ago, probably 15 years ago, and he, he got a an Optus SIM while he was here visiting. And I, I weirdly got a letter in the post because he used my address when he was visiting from Ireland when the Optus thing went down last year. And it was, you know, addressed to my dad saying, hey, we, we need to let you know that your, your data is potentially being exposed. Just think... Like how many times have I traveled and, and signed up to something or bought a SIM in another country? Like your stuff is everywhere. It's all out there. And I shouldn't laugh or make light of it, but I did see a funny meme the other day where a police officer had pulled somebody over on the side of the road and says to the driver, you know, can I have your license, please, sir? And they look back at them and say, tell me the Optus, can't you just Google it? <laughs> And I think that's definitely to the point of like it is everywhere, and uh, and you just don't know. So it's a uh, it's definitely something that uh, I think this one will be interesting to see in like how it unfolds. As we saw with like those big breaches last year, 
what the first news story isn't the last, right? And it keeps on uh, evolving, understanding what might have happened, the extent of it, what data has been compromised, all of that's still to come. So I'm sure we'll continue to learn more around what's happened with Latitude in the coming weeks as well. Absolutely. And I guess spare thought for the people that have been impacted by Latitude, Medibank, Optus, you know, it's pretty much a jigsaw puzzle where you got little pieces there, but eventually it's going to amount to something as well. So, yeah, we'll watch this space and come see what comes from this particular breach. Indeed. Uh, our next story is the latest disturbing use of AI for evil rather than good. <laughs> the ability to voice fake the verification systems at Centrelink and the ATO. Yeah, wasn't this always going to happen? Um, you know, I, I think we've we've spoken about this many times in the pod, and the you know the beauty of biometrics—they're amazing. And then the downside is that when you get to the point where they're fakeable, uh, you can't change your voice unless you're like a really talented actor um, who can do accents and all that kind of good stuff. But like, you can all lead to problems. You know, when I, th- I was thinking about this story, how often do you guys now hear? The, the the old um, pre-recording when you called into most organizations was some version of this call is going to be recorded for training purposes, blah, blah, blah. How often do you now hear um, some sort of, a, again, and it's it's opt-out rather than opt-in, um, we're going to record your voice for voice identification, like please let your agent know if you're uncomfortable with this, but it's sort of like a default and of... Um, I was on to my bank recently, um, had to do a, like a phone banking thing and, you know, got on pretty well with the person who was helping me, lovely person, and was chatting about the voice identification thing. And um, for banking, they use it as sort of augmenting the password stuff. So I think like that's pretty pretty good, right? It's an additional uh, bit of friction and I'm more than happy for it to be used as a, an also rather than an only. Um, and I, but I think you run into problems um it, and this, you know, this comes down to process, right? For uh, the ATO, for Centrelink, like you would assume that it's used as an also rather than the only thing used to um, verify people. And um, so there should be some format, um, form, I should say, sorry, of you know, password identification or, or something that allows something more than voice print. The scary thing, guys, and I know you read the story, it's like four minutes of audio to generate the fake voice print. And it was a Guardian Australian... Um, a, a sort of journal from from that organization that basically did it little proof of concept no way that that's the first time by the way like, i mean this is this is such an obvious one um and there's probably lots to say between the three of us on there this is such an obvious one uh, but you know you get somebody who's in a, um, a, a journal journalist role in the guardian australia four minutes widely available um, tools that are out there, things like Tortoise TTS, there's um, online ones where you don't even have to build your own um, instance of the AI um, for learning the voices and generating the, the fake voices. Um, it, it's trivial to do, I suppose, is the long and the short of it. So that we would walk into a situation where organizations as large as Centrelink and the ATO are using this stuff without thinking about the future where um, this is vulnerable. And, and, you know, I don't know what you guys think, but I, I was sort of thinking about like how often we do things in cyber that are sort of a useful at a point in time, but we're almost like behind. I mean, we talk about this all the time. We're almost always behind anyway. But things like encryption um, approaches where with post-quantum computing, like anyone who's doing encryption now should be thinking about what the world is like when um, PQC comes along because 
it's all for naught if you haven't built in kind of quantum protections for encryption. A lot of these things are, I would say, are kind of the same, whether that's, um, you know, voice prints, biometrics, how easy and probably trivial it'll get to the point relatively quickly where you've got deep fake videos um, that are really convincing. So the bit where you think, hey, I'm going to jump on and talk to Dan because he needs to authorize something. Like it's going to be particularly difficult to get to the point where we can fake a Dan or fake a Vin, even on a video call. It, it's funny, we were talking about this, what, two years ago, and it was a little bit theoretical. We had that one instance of the uh, German CEO getting some, uh, sorry, the attackers pretending to be that German CEO and then getting a decent amount of coin, but it was sort of like the only one everybody talked about. <laughs> but here we are, like, you know, a four-minute um, sample set of audio, and you can basically fool the voice print for two very large organizations in Australia. So you're saying your 129 podcast episodes might be enough fodder for uh, for somebody to create a, a deep fake of Gar? No, it'll be the deepest fake. It'll be deeper than the the ocean thief. <laughs> but oh, so here's the thing, though. Like as you think about that, most people these days, I mean, right? They might not be doing podcasts, but they're probably on Instagram. Like, that, that's a whole thing now, isn't it? Like you see the collision of um, people's sort of, you know, everyone's this celebrity in their own lives, and part of that is them doing these videos and telling you about what sandwich they've had or when they're on holidays. The, our, like our voices are out there in a way that they probably weren't uh, in previous years. So you get this weird collision of like everyone wants to be a superstar, so they're doing a bunch of social media stuff. That's exactly the stuff you need to train the, the robots on. Um, it's bonkers. Vin, are you still trending on TikTok? <laughs> uh, I'm not downloading TikTok because I know it's going to be a spiral that I will struggle to get rid of. Um <laughs> But I've actually got a very interesting, actually a pretty funny story about, um, I guess, using voice to authenticate as well. So what I, so you guys know me pretty well, and I do like to frequent um, any places that have karaoke because I do love a song. Uh, and it so happened that after one night of heavy karaoke, I tried to authenticate to my bank and they asked me to say a few words. I said it and it said, no, you are not been, and then I struggled on the support line to kind of get through. Um, to access my account. So uh, not foolproof. Uh, it's not always the threat actors, but also, hey, I sometimes just need to check a few things after you know, a night out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it must have been uh, the croaky voice from all the singing, Vin. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> what's your go-to song, Vin? Can you give us a few a few, uh, few lines or a few bars now? I thought we were trying to get more listeners to the pod, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Scare them off. <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, well, we we will look forward. I think we have to do one episode with uh, with at least at least some background singing from Yuvian. So we'll uh, we'll see whether we can convince you on that one. Our final deep dive story for this episode is the possibility of the government putting more onus onto tech companies for supplying insecure products. Finn, what's the implications of shifting responsibility to the tech sector? I think it's just good news all around, right? I mean, from what Clara knew, is becoming one of my favorite people on LinkedIn to follow. Just having a voice in the federal government, just talking about security, that's awesome. But it was, what she did was, it was during a keynote to one of the ASIC conferences not too long ago. Um, but it was more around, well, how do we then start to shift, I guess, the focus and the liability from you know, the most vulnerable people out there and then move it back to these tech companies, these cybersecurity providers, you know, these software companies, telecommunication firms, and kind of have them be responsible essentially for a lot of the cybersecurity that goes down. Because I think we mentioned it before, like it's unfair to tell, you know, your consumers that, you know, well, you just agreed to all these terms and conditions, tick a box, and all of a sudden, like, 
the software itself or the product itself isn't secure, and all of a sudden like your information is out there as well. So I think there needs to be responsibility. I think this is a step in the right direction. It, it makes me think back to uh, the, I guess the US's cyber strategy for 2023, uh, specifically the third pillar, which talks about how we can shape a market to force, to drive security and resilience. So that shift in liability. And we've done other things very similar to what they mentioned as well, like protecting our critical infrastructure, which we saw the Critical Infrastructure Act out not so long ago as well. Um, but to me, it's also like a very fine balance too, right? Like we want to have security inbuilt from the very start. You have that trickle down effect where at the very top, you know, once we're very secure in our, you know, our standards and how we create certain things with security built around it as it trickles down, like that's good. But we also don't want to then stop you know, the innovation that comes from these technology groups as well. That's also very important that they're able to freely develop new things, cool things that will help society um, and have essentially security be you know, not necessarily a hurdle, but you know, something that needs to be considered to, at the very start of when they're trying to create these technologies and products. Yeah, this reminds me of uh, when we first started talking about IoT devices and you know, and how insecure many of those might be and, you know, what seems like, you know, a good bargain at the time um, actually might be uh, might be creating sort of future problems for people. It feels as though this is sort of taking that to a new level. Spot on. Um, like, top of it, I mean, this is a really old conversation, but it's good to see this. there's some energy behind um, getting a fix in place. Um, I think that's the thing. You and, you and I, Dan, have talked on Mike and off Mike about it for many, many years now. And, you know, it is fundamentally that problem, as you say. Like, I think IoT is the perfect example because it tends to be kind of the cheap, excuse the expression, but like cheap crap that does a thing. But, the, you know, the thing that it does, normally, I mean, you know, whether it's a, something like a webcam um, or, you know, a, thermo, a thermostat or whatever, like, a, you know, the home automation type stuff, the focus is on the thing that it does rather than the security around the thing that it does. And that's the problem. That's exactly the problem. And, you know, you take IoT, that's a very extreme example because people are chucking things into their own networks that are, you know, then exploitable and give you the kind of way in or the, the stepping stone into the other stuff. Not just homes. Obviously, that's happening in corporate. You know, the, the famous case of the fish tank in <laughs> the Vegas casino. Um, the, the most told story, I think, in one year of cyber... Um, <laughs> Uh, that one was, but you know, it, it's an ex, it's an excellent and extreme example of what the problem is. But I would say the same applies to you get a you know a financial software package. Cool, like the focus for the people buying that is the thing that it does, which is finance or HR. It isn't necessarily the security side of things, but then the liability kind of it sort of ends up sitting with the organization that's purchased the thing to do the thing rather than. Um, sitting with the the manufacturer, the people who write the code, or the people who sell the security software or platform. So it's a useful uh, useful positioning, I would say, and it's a good lever for a, a government is the only one that can really pull that lever, I would say. Um, actually, we were talking about this yesterday, right? You know, the, the sort of market failure that's happened in, in cybersecurity because it's really easy to externalize the costs, go cheap, get the thing into the market, make some mad coin. But um, the the cost of then the breaches is borne by the people who have to get a new license reissued or um, you know deal with the kind of identity theft or or, or theft of data. Um, I think it's good. The, the other thing I would say, and you know, I think Vin might have already kind of mentioned this stuff, is you know, it, it aligns so well with that U.S. Um, cyber strategy and the, the shaping of the market forces to drive security and resilience. 
it seems important to me that this happens globally uh, because what you don't want is one country goes hardcore on you know legislation to build security by design. So all of a sudden, you know, the cost of operating in that country or developing in that country goes up. Therefore, you know, you're not as attractive for building the thing and getting the thing out to market. And then, you know, the, the sort of global market forces kind of mess everything up. So I think having a cohesive approach um, across at least the developed countries, and I think that's a, a term you're not supposed to use anymore, but like you, you, get, you get what I mean, like the, the countries that are um, um, probably aligned from a security perspective and markets perspective, that they're all in sync on this. So I think that's a useful thing to to have in play. Yeah, and I think on the surface, it sounds like a great thing. I'm sure, though, that it will be pretty complex in terms of actually how far can you go Huge. and how do you police this and and how do you when do you determine what equals insecure so that like then the legislation actually can have some teeth behind it and you know and actually hold people to account. I I still I struggle a little bit with some of that. I feel like you know at what point can how far can you go if a number of these companies are you know, headquartered elsewhere, uh, what's our jurisdiction, how far can we go, are we really doing it? And then, like you say, if we're sort of, you know, creating this artificially high bar to enter the market, what's the cost for businesses and consumers in Australia as well? So I think on the surface, it sounds like, of course, you would do this, right? It's, it's the right thing and it should be done. Um, but I definitely think it's going to uh, show some difficulties, I guess, I think, in the implementation of it. Did, is this one of these kind of rock and hard place things? And I'm re- reminded of uh, when Dmitry Alperovich was on and we were talking about the CNI stuff and IoT, actually. Um, and I kind of s- sort of thought I was making a good point around, you know, the the inability then for smaller vendors to get into that market. And that seemed unfair. And he kind of made the point, well, like it's unfair, but also you don't want to put your CNI at risk because, <laughs> you know, we want to be allow for innovation. Like it's a real tricky one because then you roll it forward. The only ones that can afford to do it are potentially the larger, you know, the larger players. So, you know, you, you sort of, you choke out the smaller rapid innovation um, new inventions, all that stuff maybe starts to go away. And I know that's kind of the point Vin was making right at the very start, but like that is also a thing um, that needs to be thought through because let's be honest, so many things in society have been, I would say, negatively affected by the requirements for insurance. You know, and it was a little bit of a, it was certainly in the zeitgeist back in Ireland. And I think over here, it's fair to say too, where, you know, playgrounds weren't playgrounds anymore because you couldn't afford to do it because the public liability and, you know, the single, or sorry, sole traders were gone out of business because they couldn't afford the, uh, couldn't afford the uh, insurance costs. So like you, you sort of don't want to add to the burden of, especially now given the kind of global recession and how everything feels, like you, probably yeah. the last thing you want to go do is say, oh, by the way, here's some more costs on top of all the other stuff you're already paying for. I think with all of these things, it's <clears throat> that balancing act and trying to find that. And that's it, hard to find that that middle ground that does work on all aspects, right? So it's, uh, uh, again, this is proposed at this stage. Um, I think as we sort of see with the government at the moment, there's a lot of things that are under review and that are coming. Um, and I think with sort of around even the whole cyber strategy and where it's going. Um, they've recently appointed McKinsey um, again uh, to, to do the next round of strategy. There's, a, there's still a lot to come in this space and it'll be interesting to see how these things actually manifest themselves into legislation over time as well. 
Finally, let's wrap up with a quick review of the latest breaches and vulnerabilities to make the headlines. The first news item is how the owner of the site that hosted the Optus and Medibank data has been arrested. Gar, how did this come about? Um, yeah, so that, I mean, this is a, a chap who is in uh, New York. And uh, I, if I had a guess, I'd say he's either Irish or of Irish descent based on uh, the name that's been reported, Connor Brian Fitzpatrick. Um, like, honestly, I, I see somebody in a paddy cap and carrying a shillelagh uh, <laughs> drinking a pint of Guinness when I, I read that name. Um, but uh, yeah, so... F- distant, F- distant cousin? <laughs> or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's my alter ego. Um, yeah, I wish. Um, and, and honestly, Dan, you know what kills me is it probably is a distant cousin. Um, like that's a, the Irish people kind of get, we get annoyed by the, you know, do you know, um, you know, Conor Brown Fitzpatrick and then even more annoyed when it turns out, yes, we do. Because uh, it's a small, <laughs> small country. But anyway, um, yeah, so like he was allegedly running the, the breach forms. And as you say, that's where... Um, you saw the uh, MetaBank and the um, Singtelopsis Optus data. Sorry, was was published there. Um, it's one of many of these forms, right? I mean, there's a lot of them out there, and um, I think what you know what's interesting here is obviously that um, he has been uh, he has been kind of apprehended. His his kind of alias, I think, so it's going to be interesting. Pom Pom Purin. Um, like, I really wonder where the, the names come from. I'd love to know the genesis of that as a, an alias. Uh, but I don't have no idea why somebody would choose that name, but there you go. Sounds like a late night at karaoke, maybe. <laughs> it, it does. It's like Vin's <laughs> favorite song to sing. <laughs> but, but yeah, like the the sort of FBI agents that were there, um, there's there's a sworn affidavit, which is actually online. You can see the the sort of document. I don't know if you guys have had a look at that one yet, but um, the FBI agent kind of outlines the the reasons why they think it's this person, and apparently, um, the the suspect, uh, Brian uh, Brian Connor Fitzpatrick, uh, or sorry, Connor Brian Fitzpatrick, um, sort of said, "Yeah, it's me." Uh, but the, yeah, the, the the sort of the document is online with the signature for the special agent, who's John Longmar, um, and you know, in March 2023. So, like, I, I did. I never really know how to interpret those documents because it's written sort of like somebody has to say stuff for legal reasons for for this to be kind of a sworn affidavit, affidavit sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it, it calls out his AKA or his his kind of alias, Pump Pump Purin and, and all of that kind of good stuff. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that one kind of plays out. The other thing that's kind of worth pointing out on, on all of these is, um, and actually on... Um, the Darknet Diaries. I don't know if you guys listened to that, but there's some really good stuff on their long form stories around some of the kind of brief, um, the forum owners. And, you know, part of the thing that they all deal with in these situations is once somebody's been arrested, you can never really trust the site from then on, even if it takes on a new admin. Um, and on one of the episodes of that, there was an amazing story of one of these kind of forums where part of the problem was like once it's kind of infiltrated, a lot of the time they're not going to tell you that straight away because then they can kind of catch a bunch of other people who continue to use the forums, track them down, and then you see the sort of the, the dragnet or the the um, the operation expanding to get other people. And I think that's part of this is often when you when you see these news hit, if nothing else, it rattles all of the people using many of the forums because they already have a sense of like, can we trust you know, Dan McDermott online is really, is it actually Dan McDermott or is it Special Agent Vin Yoon? You don't really know, right, until until the, the knock on the door and you get the perp walk out to the, the car. Um, 
Yeah, so interesting uh, to see. Yeah, somebody kind of busted in uh, in uh, New York for that. Yeah, but all the way on the other side of the world shows. Uh, you know, cybercrime has no no borders, right? That's for sure. Next is how cyber criminals have looked to cash in on the fear, uncertainty, and doubt created by the SVB bank collapse with BEC and cryptocurrency scams. Finn, it seems like the cyber criminals are living by the motto of never letting a good disaster go without capitalizing on people's misfortune. Ah, I like that one. Um, yeah, we, we see this quite a bit, don't we? It's uh, whatever's happened in the state of the world, it's always another lever that these cyber criminals can actually then start to use. And then, you know, prey on people's sense of urgency uh, on their emotions or what really kind of triggers them to get them to do something. And in this case, it's Silicon Valley Bank's downfall. Um, It's been well documented across the board. A lot of good write-ups about how that happens and essentially what happened post that, which is essentially like a lot of money being locked up and not being able to access. And under a certain amount of dollars, there's no insurance. So a lot of people have lost a lot of money based off the fall of that particular bank. That's music to the criminals' ears because what they can then start to do, and they've actually been documented as well, is that they started to spin up domains that look very close to SVB. So I think there's ones like SVB debt collector, SVB like credit, like that type of stuff that looks very close to SVB actual domain to try to trick people to say, hey, you know, you owe us this all this money because you need there's a bill you need to pay or yeah, there's certain things you need to give us first. And people are actually falling for that. And in a state where people are scrambling, probably with HR and other parts of the department, trying to figure out what is the outcome based off SPP falling over, like what do we have to do internally? This is another noise. This is just more noise in the background to get them to you know, either give up credentials, give up cryptocurrency, money, information. We've seen it before time and time again, like even locally, right? Do you remember the with the, the bushfires we saw? Like how many fake charity scams were happening, people trying to prey on the goodness of other people's heart and just to take money away from them. It's absolutely horrible, but it's the kind of state that cyber criminals will use whatever they have at hand to try to get through to your wallets, essentially. Yes, indeed. And finally, and I'm sure I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, the... Go, Dan, go, Dan, go. Acropolipsy? Acropolipsy? I don't know. Bug <laughs> on the Android has turned into, leave me alone, has turned into a zero-day Windows vulnerability. Gar, please tell us about this vulnerability. Uh, the the Acropolips. And I feel like I'm saying that wrong there. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the name of it. I don't know why I find it kind of like amusing. But anyways, um, yeah, so this is a bug that... Um, uh, a, a couple of folks, uh, Simon Aaron's and a guy called David Buchanan, had found uh, originally on, as you said, down on Android. And there's a um, on on a Pixel phone. I think like many phones, there's a an app where when you take a, a screenshot, you can kind of crop it to the bit that you're interested in. And it turned out that um, in the PNG files, when you're cropping that image, basically there's a called an high end. There's a set of data uh, that's retained in the PNG file afterwards that you can basically unredact. So if you happen to be, um, you know, take a screenshot of something and then, you know, we're cropping it to get rid of something that maybe was sensitive or PII or, or whatever it is, um, in in essence, basically the PNG file still retain that data and you can reverse engineer the PNG file to show the thing that was essentially cropped out of the original image. And, um, you know, the, clearly that's not great. And, um, you know, it's it was patched actually in March... Uh, of 2023, so this month. Um, I'm a Pixel user, so I'm cl- glad to hear that it's been done. Um, 
the the thing is then um so basically the the collaborator uh on the the work with Simon Aaron so got that guy David Buchanan basically found that the sniffing tool in, in Windows 11 uh does the same thing so there's a you know work in play to you would hope uh, by Microsoft to fix it um I don't think they've released the the code to do it on Windows at the moment because Microsoft haven't actually got the patch out there but I'm assuming once and the patch goes and gets done, then you know the the fix will be out there. This is another example where, you know, all the PNG files that have been created. I think it goes back four years on Android, are sort of like vulnerable, and um, you know that maybe hasn't been thought about uh, fully when people are creating images. And um, apparently, um, I don't know. This is one of the short roundups, so I'll, I'll shut up. But um, on the Pixel or on Android. It wasn't the actual, I think I remember the thing was called Maker, I think it was the app where you used it to edit the images. It wasn't the app was wrong, but they changed the file system on Android and how that worked, the storage, in a way that it impacted the, um, the Maker app so that you ended up with this issue. So I don't actually think it was the app so much as the underlying OS uh, that caused the problem, you know, for whatever that's worth. But um, just an interesting one and and. Like, you know, one of the million ways stuff can go wrong. Like, who would have thought, like, cropping an image was going to pose a potential <laughs> confidentiality problem? But here we are. For sure. And we'll look out for the uh, for the patch from uh, from Microsoft shortly, I'm sure. Well, thank you, Gar and Vin. Appreciate your insights in another big news episode today. Gar, who do you have for us as our special guest next week? Yeah, next week uh, we've got uh, Dr. Andrew Reeves. So Andrew is a guy we saw um, at the Cybermans uh, gala dinner fairly recently, and he was part of a, a panel there um, kind of really discussing, obviously, mental health in the cyber industry. Um, he's he's really, we've, we've done the kind of prep uh, call for the episode, and we're kind of excited. I said to you, Dan, like, I wish I'd hit record, because um, he's a very interesting guy with a, a fairly broad set of interests, actually. Um, so he's a research and consultant for human aspects of cybersecurity. He works in out of Adelaide, um, and he's obviously involved in in cyberminds. But you know, in the conversation, we'll kind of get to um, the sort of the things that are different around cyber and how you can kind of predict that burnout stuff. But more to the point, like how to how to go about kind of avoiding burnout within um, within your role, and um, you know, sort of all the research that he's been done. I think what's really interesting about Andrew and Saruman's, um is that this is research-based because I think there's been a lot of anecdotal conversations around what the problem is. But um, obviously with Andrew being an academic, we can kind of get into the research and the, the actual data that supports the conversation around mental health. Yeah, really looking forward to it. Uh, as you said, we heard some of his uh, sort of preamble um, at the Cyberminds dinner recently and just fascinating some of the insights and what they've actually been able to find. And really, at the end of the day, the trauma that cyber professionals are under. Um, so definitely one to, uh, to listen out for and to hear the good side of the upside of what can be done as well, which is certainly, uh, the, I guess, the silver lining of, uh, of what we need to be looking for. Well, until next week, if you'd like to continue exploring key topics in cybersecurity, please jump on to getcyberresilient.com and check out some of the latest articles, including... From Farm to Fish, How Hackers Set Their Eyes on the Agriculture Sector, and How Next-Gen DDoS Can Overwhelm Even the Most Resilient Organizations. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay safe.